Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and Vice President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording November 8, 2021, we're joined by our fellows James Ferguson from the University of Manitoba, Tim Choi, who's at the University of Calgary, and Charlotte Devalentois, who's here with me in Ottawa, to discuss the priorities and key issues facing our new Minister of National Defence in Canada, the Honourable Anita Emmett. In the next few months, Canada will select its next fighter aircraft that will help ensure the safety and security of Canadians and deliver economic benefits to industry. The next generation Block 3 Super Hornet is the best choice to take on Canada's most complex missions. It will also deliver more than 250,000 high paying jobs and 61 billion to Canada's economy over the life of the program. This is nearly three times more than its competitors. It has also work that stays in Canada guaranteed. Along with the economic benefits, the Super Hornet is the most efficient, affordable means of transitioning from Canada's existing CF-18s to a new platform. It is capable of performing the full range of tactical strike fighter missions required by the Royal Canadian Air Force at a much more affordable rate. For the Canadian men and women in uniform that will be flying this aircraft, it's important that they can execute their mission safely and return home each and every day. The Block 3 Super Hornet's two-engine design ensures safe operations over open sea, the Arctic, and other challenging environments. Whether it's today or tomorrow, Boeing will continue to be a partner to Canada well into the future. Charlotte, Jim, Tim, welcome to Defense Deconstructed. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Well, it's good. All right, so we'll go geographically. We'll, st we'll start east, east and work our way west today. Um, we can't get the whole way across the country, but we'll, we'll get as far as we can here and ending up with Tim in Calgary. Um, so the, the, we've had a new Minister of National Defense for uh, as we're recording this for coming up on a, on a couple of weeks uh, i guess two broad questions to, to the, all three of you uh, what are the issues that the, you think that the minister is going to be focused on and which issues do you think are important and and need additional focus uh, with this change in the ministry so Charlotte, I'll, I'll start with you and kick off the discussion uh, and, and i think that we've quite clearly seen some action already but uh, what do you think this minister is demonstrating that her priorities are as she um, becomes Canada's Minister of National Defense? Well, we have seen in the past week that right now her priority seems to clearly be conduct and tackling the sexual misconduct crisis that we have had on our hands for the past nine months now. Um, and to me, this is this should be the priority because there has been such a loss of trust in the leadership, including in the Minister of National Defense, that action is required now. As soon as the dust settles a little bit and that we get into the mechanics of change on the way and that we have um, a Canadian Armed Forces that is a little bit more proactive in terms of pursuing change, then she will be able to focus a little bit more on other international security and defense challenges that we have on our hands and that needs our attention. Jim, same question to you. Uh, where do you think the minister's focus is going to be? Uh, obviously, we're seeing action on, on the personnel uh, front. Uh, what else do you think is front and center? Well, I agree with Charlotte. The focus right now, and I assume if the government continues its past practices on having a mandate letter uh, for the department, which of course comes out of the department, will be on the sexual misconduct file. Uh, that's everything is clear. And I'm not, I don't wanna downgrade the significance of changing the culture of the Canadian Armed Forces. But I think in fact that the real issue facing the forces and particularly facing the minister is a different one. And that is given the economic climate, 
given the other priorities of the government, particularly climate change. The real issue facing the minister is given the commitments made out of 2017, strong, secure, and engaged, and the 2018 investment plan and its review in 2019, and they've gone silent on it, is the question of the future of the defense budget and commitment for increasing defense spending and meeting the procurement demands. Uh, whether the new minister is powerful enough or has close enough to the prime minister and the senior levels of cabinet to be able to defend and protect that defense spending commitment is I think the key question this department's going to face. And uh, I, I would like to say I'm sanguine about it, but I'm not. Uh, and we'll see when the budget comes out in the spring, how this, and then, then from there, there's a lot of, as you hinted at Dave earlier, there are a lot of procurement issues, not least of all the F-18 replacement project that's coming down the pipeline, supposedly very shortly. Jim, if I can just ask you to, to push you at the person uh, who's, um historical memory and reach on these issues spans uh, the, the most fulsome amount of time here. Uh, do you see echoes of the Somalia period in terms of the confluence of those same set of factors that you talked about? So significant issues causing um, at, at a minimum um, significant loss of, of trust, uh, perceptions about uh, the competency or the ability to act on parts of some senior parts of the armed forces, along with uh, economic, not necessarily the economic situation is significantly different, but fiscal situation potentially um, stretched. Do you see parallels of Somalia today? To a small degree, I do. But the issues confronting the, uh, the budget for national defense and future spending commitments and pure procurement commitments, as they were in the context of Somalia, Somalia was in many ways a very short-term impact on the forces more internal to government than it really had any public uh, resonance, uh, at least in any long-term sense. So it's gonna have some impact, I believe, in terms of how the prime minister and the senior members of government. And we need to remember, although uh, the new defense minister, Anita Anad, is considered a rising star, defense ministers are by and large second tier levels within cabinet. And what influence she really has is a really important question. So we'll have, I think, some degree of impact on how thinking goes with the budget, but I wouldn't push it very far at all. Tim, how about you? Uh, further west uh, in Canada, uh, how do things look in terms of what uh, is on this minister, new minister's agenda? Well, just building off sort of what Jim said about the, um, you know, the budget or what you guys are just talking about right now, about you know, parallels with the 90s. And I think we have a big difference here in the way that government approaches spending. Um, you know, during the Grisham period, I think the general notion was that we've got to bring the debt down. Whereas, you know, underneath um, the Trudeau government, they're much more <laughs> cavalier with, uh, you know, passing uh, the buck onto the future and just spreading, you know, the uh, general um, debt that's need to be repaid over a much longer period of time. And, you know, to some extent, that's kind of the government's job, right, to use a much greater degree of um, options to repay um, high amounts of uh, borrowing. And, you know, unlike the 90s, our procurement programs aren't really being, you know, compressed into that same short period of time. And they're, you know, the current fleets that we have, whether submarines um, or surface ships, you know, they're still good around for another, you know, 10 or 15 years. Um, of course, you know, we have to start rebuilding them now, but 
they're not being replaced in as near of a time frame as the 90s. And so in terms of both the government's willingness to spend money, um, even if it's borrowed money, versus its requirement to spend that money now, you know, it's, um, it's over a much longer period of time. And so I think there is some hope that um, defense might be in a slightly better shape um, for requesting the funds it requires now versus the 90s. So in terms of um, the actual um, what I expect the focus of the minister will be on, it's on that NORAD um, defense and continental defense um, element. And you see that very much so in the deputy minister's letters um, in recent uh, months, recent weeks. And it's a thing that they're really seized by in terms of any actual capital replacement issue. And it comes out of a bit of a left field, I think, um, mostly because it's not a thing that you know, Canada in and of itself has been um, really engaged in on its own for the last several years. Um, and, you know, is that what we should be focused on? I mean, I don't think it's a thing that we can ignore, but there are also a number of much more narrowly time-specced um, items that we also need to deal with, not least of which, of course, as Jim said, the F-18s, um, you know, they're, the announcement of who's going to win that is supposed to come this year, um, perhaps next next year a little bit, um, but it's going to be well within the first half of um, the minister's um, you know, term. So it's going to happen. And that's not something whether she wants to or not um, that she can you know, just pass, off, pass the buck on. Um, it's definitely going to be an issue that will have to be addressed, whether the new economic um, situation means we're you know, favoring certain designs over others um, just to bring the costs down. That is um, interesting. That would be a development that I wouldn't be surprised takes place. Um, in terms of other issues that I think would be coming down the pipe towards the end of her term, it's um, it'll be the build contract for the service combatants because right now it's sort of on autopilot a little, where the uh, prime contractor is you know issuing subcontracts to a whole bunch of suppliers, all the radars, the engines, um, etc., the weapons, guns. The missiles, uh, those are all being handled you now without having without much input from DD itself. So there's not much of a direct attention that you know the minister needs to do. But the thing that she will need to do is you know approve the bill contract towards um 2023, 2024. So that that's gonna be the next one. Um, and of course, right now we have the submarine project replacement program that just stood up, but you know, it just it just got stood up. So um you know, when will they be in a situation to propose any options to cabinet and then they'll have to choose the steps forward, um, probably not for another couple of years. On the other hand, you know, we've seen through the AUKUS uh, situation where you have to do this really early on. And, you know, for the Australians, they got the 18 months of review to see what the next path forward is. Um, are we going to take 18 months? Um, <laughs> we hope it will take only 18 months. Um, but, you know, if the decision that will be made is, you know, do we go nuclear or do we, you know, stay conventional? Um, you know, whatever decision that makes, you know, that has been made really early on. Um, and so that might fall within Anand's term. Um, yeah. And just to build off two things that you said, Jim, uh, in, in response in part to Jim, I mean, certainly uh, the 
the wider discussion space about the need to return to balance, I think is fundamentally different than it was in the 90s. Uh, I think there was consensus now um, and there's consensus uh, at the present time. There's, there's consensus then and consensus now, there's different consensus. Before there was a general consensus that we needed to get to balance. And, and right now, uh, I think there's virtually no consensus that uh, we need to do so. And there's, there's pretty strong support uh, from spending uh, across the political spectrum. And, and you don't hear many people outside of government. And to your point, the a new accounting structure that was brought in in the late 2000s does make these big purchases a fundamentally different um, bag of fish when you're you're dealing with the, the fiscal aspects of it. So that is um, something to keep in mind as, as those uh, issues roll forward. Shall I'm going to come back to you. Um, the extant defense policy, strong, secure, engaged, um, had uh, people at the center of its first chapter. Uh, where, what's your sense of in addition to the conduct uh, crisis uh, that, that's ongoing and the minister's initial steps, so where are some of those other personnel initiatives uh, with the corollary that the Liberals campaign uh, platform from the last election talked about kind of building off those in a way and making the forces a more inclusive workplace in particular. Strong, secure, engaged, and inclusive was uh, the tagline that they used in that campaign platform. So talk a bit about you know where else do you see some of the other personnel initiatives that are underway uh, going and how much do you think they cross cut with the, the other issues that have been ongoing in the last uh, 10 months or so? I, I think what we have seen in, in the past few months is a, a return to the focus on the people's peace because it has been quite quiet um, since at least 2019. Uh, we discussed uh, the defense diversity strategy back in 2018, but it seems to be dead just like uh, Operation Honor was, was killed off uh, in November 2020 or March 2021, depending on, uh, on who you listen to. Um, we're seeing a return of that, um, but the situation is still very much very ad hoc. Uh, there is not really yet a strategy because the chief military personnel uh, is enacting one and not a full uh, chief military personnel. So what we're seeing right now is a move towards uh, some of the gender integration policies that were pushed for it actually in the 1990s, where we finally have discussions about um, having a ma maternal uh, gear for um, service members that breastfeed, a more gender neutral approach to, to uniform. Uh, some people would call it genderless um, as well, but that would be more complicated. We have a, we're seeing also a change in terms of performance evaluations that is directly born out of the crisis that we have on our hands today. So th there seems to be some movements, but that being said, we, we saw some movements in terms of personnel policies after Operation Honor, and then it died down. And we have seen the same thing during the 1990s. Usually there are quote unquote more pressing issues and that, that are more procurement or international security related. But to, to go back to the, to the 90s piece, I think that where we see some parallels between what we had we experienced during the 1990s and, and today is that even though there is no budget contraction yet in in canada what we're seeing is a canadian armed forces that is overstretched has to implement a lot of procurement uh projects need to adapt to a new range of 
uh, threats and adopt new capabilities very quickly and we're already behind and because and that is directly connected to a lot of the conduct issues that, that we have because when we have what we call a resource and mission mismatch when we have a force that is overstretched usually we we land on conduct issues because we are having a more toxic workplace now let's take a quick break to hear about one of our sponsors for 111 years, the Royal Canadian Navy has worked closely with our allies around the world. During the Battle of the Atlantic, Canada's Navy stood shoulder to shoulder with our allies. Many of the ships that Canada put to sea in World War II were built in Canada, and that tradition lives on today. Our sponsor, Irving Shipbuilding, will build the new Canadian surface combatant for Canada at the Halifax Shipyard. The CSC is based on the Type 26 Global Combat Ship Design, which is currently under construction in the United Kingdom and Australia. Canada's CSC will also be equipped with the Aegis Combat System, extending Canada's interoperability with six allied nations around the world. The new CSC will be Canada's most advanced ship ever built and is the superior choice to protect and support Canadian sailors. The Royal Canadian Navy has always stood up for Canada's interests and stood with our allies to secure them. The CSC ensures our Navy has the tools it needs to take that legacy into the future. Jim, uh, get you to pick up on the, the continental defense piece. Um, just on the eve of the last election, literally, there was a joint statement um, about uh, moving forward, making new investments signed by the Secretary of Defense and the previous Minister of National Defense. And that, that followed on um, joint letters that came up from Prime Minister Trudeau and the last, uh, the current and previous American president. Uh, give a bit of a sense of where you think that uh, that is, uh, maybe juxtaposed against what movement there's been, if any, uh, on that file south of the border. If, before I answer that, I just want to go back to Charlotte's point, because she's really talking about another issue, which is should be a priority with the forces, and it relates to all the comments she made about the issues. That's recruitment and retention. There's a big issue here that the forces and the ministers got to deal with. And I think Charlotte is dead right trying to reform the toxic environment may hopefully have contribute positively. As to continental defense, we, we remain where we've been for the past several years. Uh, I think in, if there's a mandate letter comes out that it will be interested to see if there's a reference to what was the priority in the last mandate letter. Uh, but since then, as far as is in the public domain, the government hasn't done anything. As far as in the United States, they still talk about the priority of homeland defense. But again, we haven't seen a lot of, uh, uh, well, uh, let me put it in the old phrase, talks cheap, money buys whiskey. And we've seen a lot of talk and we're waiting to see delivery. And I just, I, maybe it's because I'm getting old and I'm not very sanguine about things, but I, I have, I'm, I'm I just doubt until I see some firm steps coming out of both governments that this is going to proceed forward, which it needs to, and it's vital to proceed forward. It is the priority in the defense world for Canada and as well as for the United States. But until I see that start to play out in terms of some commitment of dollars to this, some idea of the architecture, the new architecture that's needed to deal with the defense issues in North America, I remain skeptical, and I hate to say it, but I just have to remain skeptical. So, Tim, uh, turning to you, uh, looking ahead, uh, what else do you think is important that, that may not uh, immediately be on the agenda, but you think uh, uh, 
that uh, is going to be something that the MND has judged upon a few years uh, down the road retrospectively. Right? She's coming in inheriting a situation um, just a, a few weeks really after the, the announcement of that new AUKUS agreement and increased attention towards the Indo-Pacific uh, region. And if, if you use that as an example, do you think we'll see any more activity uh, oriented towards the Pacific? So I think we'll try to. Um... But I think in some extent, our military already does more in the Indo-Pacific than most Canadians are aware of. Um, just in terms of our continual presence of our Navy, actually, you know, we basically have been nonstop in that region for the last five years. Um, but it's not something that, you know, the government or, M or DND ever really, you know, advertises very much. Um, we even have, you know, some of our uh, fisheries patrol aircraft that were based out of Japan recently to conduct North Pacific fisheries patrols um, in coordination with the Japanese and American Coast Guard. So, you know, we are quite active in that region um, to the extent that, you know, we are capable of doing. Um, but, you know, adding, you know, um, just making that more prevalent, publicized more to the public, um, you know, is a big part of it. And, you know, in the vacuum of that, you see that there is a very large attention paid to our non-participation in the AUKUS agreement. Um, you know, for many people will say that, oh, it's a sign that Canada isn't in the region enough, that we are not pulling our weight, we haven't been present, we have been doing work. And yeah, you know, that, that is true, you know, we can always do more. But on the other hand, even if we had done more, I don't think we'd still be included in AUKUS, just because, you know, everybody likes to talk about how it's a broad spectrum thing. It's more than just submarines that has a whole bunch of AI, quantum, all the other good stuff. And, you know, those are stuff that, you know, Canada does have some knowledge and expertise and you know, technology um, um, developments in. But, you know, at the heart of it, it is that submarine piece. And, you know, in terms of nuclear propelled submarines, we don't have anything to contribute in that regard. And for the Australia, looking at it from the Australian perspective, and it is their initiative after all, um, you know, why would they want to have us, a fourth country, another chef in the kitchen to further delay their own already delayed program? Um, you know, there is very little for the Australians to gain by having us on board um, on, in regards to the central core piece of the AUKUS program, and that is the submarines. Um, I'm just gonna say again, you know, a lot of people hand wave away the submarines as though it's just one small part of the overall uh, alliance architecture of it. I don't think that's true. I think submarines are absolutely central and core to it. Without them, you can have separate agreements on, you know, technology transfer of quantum and AI and all the good stuff. But, you know, that's not gonna hit anywhere near the front lines, the front headlines and the, you know, massive um, um, conflicts that's gone on between France and the other allies um, that we've seen. So, you know, the submarines are the core of it and you can't assess uh, Canada's position or non-position in AUKUS without understanding the Australian perspective on replacing their you know, $95 billion worth of submarines. So that's a, that's a big part of it. Um, of course, that also feeds into sort of what Jim has been talking about just now is sort of this conflict that Canada has between the home versus the away game. And, you know, the NORAD piece is very much the home piece, right? It is the idea that, you know, the, con the continent of North America is under threat um, from the Russians or the Chinese or whatever. Um, but on the other hand, Canada's actual military activities tend to be much more forward-oriented, uh, forward whether it's aircraft or uh, whether it's the Navy or the Air Force. Um, and that and we're going to see this conflict come up in the replacement programs, um, especially for submarines, because you know on the one hand we you know during the very few times that the Victorias have actually been you know ready and capable of service, you know we didn't deploy them 
at home where we didn't deploy them up north. We send them east and west. We send them to Europe. We send them to East Asia, to operating out of Japan. And you know that is something that Navy very much likes to do with them. Um, even though under the current replacement project, the Arctic is a huge core priority for them. Um, unfortunately, it also means, you know, if it's the Arctic, it's going to be nuclear. And But, you know, if Canada isn't willing to pay for nuclear, then we got to give up the Arctic, uh, at least for the submarines aspect. So it comes down to sort of an all or nothing approach, at least for the submarine replacement program. Um, if we want the Arctic to be a place where our submarines can play, then it's going to be all in on the nuclear. Otherwise, all the other alternative technologies still aren't there, still aren't going to be capable of um, you know, operating, having a usable um, capability under the ice. Um, yeah, so that's the home versus away game. It's a big conflict that we have here at home. We Canada is the only medium power who sends their military forces to the other sides of the world. Um, you know, we have the same geographic challenges that the Americans, the superpower faces. Uh, we have the same sort of ambition in terms of geographic scope, but we have nowhere near the resources for it. And so that's always going to be the conflict that we have. And at some point, we're going to have to say yes to one and no to the other. And um, yeah. Or take the Canadian option of saying we're going to do both. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and just figuring it out later. Uh, Jim, to come back to you, uh, what's an issue do you think that the minister is going to end up having to spend time on or, or alternately will be judged upon a few years from now if uh, she does not? Well, just a brief comment uh, to Tim's points, and I agree, our actual actions, empirical evidence of what we do in the, in the Pacific, Asia Pacific, is a lot more than everyone understands. But this is a foreign policy question. And there's an issue for the government, for lots of governments over the past, about integrating foreign policy and defense policy together. And uh, I don't think the foreign policy, the global affairs, whatever the hell we call them now, uh, is really paying attention. They're global warming, they're doing other things. So that's a big problem. If I may, as for submarines, I understand and agree with you entirely, Tim, about the logic behind them, but give it up. It's dead, it's delusional. We're not gonna do it. You start to look at the fundamental things, the fighter replacement, the combat vessel replacement, uh, other issues that have to be dealt with right away, North American defense modernization. Uh, it's a Navy desire, and there's a lot of logic behind it, but it's not going to happen. Uh, it, I just can't see it. A as to our, our, the minister and the big issues, as I said, the big issue for the minister, and this has been a long, all my years, and I hate to you know play the old man card, is success or failure of ministers in national defense and the bureaucracy, military and civilian is a simple one. Can you deliver the money? And that's gonna be the key equation. Can she deliver the money? Can she convince cabinet, given the current line that's come out of national defense, which is reasonable that defending on defense is key to economic st stimulus to recover the economy. It sounds nice on the surface, but of course you have to then look at the defense, Canada's defense industrial and technological base and how we spend money and that becomes a different issue. If you ask me where our priority should be, and I agree with Dave's point and we try to do all and we end up doing nothing, uh, the issue really revolves around one simple thing for Canada now. 
And it's reflected, in fact, in the failures of our foreign policy, whether you talk about our peacekeeping initiatives from the government when they started back in 2015, which have failed miserably. Uh, this is North American defense. And I'm biased in this area, and I understand that. But that's where the government, the department, needs to focus its attention. Uh, if you look at the United States, in my view, the United States recognizes, even though it's a global superpower, it's a leading military power, it can't do everything anymore. It can't cover it across the board. It's looking for allies to fill certain gaps. And the key thing for Canada, relative to our own interests, because at the end of the day, our own interest is the defense of Canada. That's where the government needs to start to focus attention and be serious about investing in, which will bring the Americans along. Am I sanguine about that? Uh, no, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I just get too old. I've been around too long. So that's my view on those things. Okay, Charles, I'll give the, the last word to you. So I guess two full question. You've been watching all the personal issues uh, very closely. Do you think there are there a couple, one or two or three? Are there one or two or three kind of key decisions or key key parts of that that whole issue landscape that you think if the minister can deal with them effectively, we can start to kind of turn the page on on that uh, that whole set of conduct issues? And then the second the question I've asked the other two: uh, Is there an issue that out there you think that the minister is going to either have to spend more time on than, than previously planned, um, or is one that uh, hasn't gotten enough oxygen but you think needs to? So actually, I'm going to go first to an issue of procurement and money, but not in the, into the traditional sense that Tim or Jim uh, would approach, but it has to do with equipment, but equipment for personnel. So in the 1990s, there has been that big push for equipment that is adapted to the physiology of women or uh, soldiers of smaller stature, and like for longer than my lifetime, this has not been completed. Uh, we still have uh, women that need to modify their rucksack, that have um, uniform that is too big for them, boots that are too heavy for them. And that leads to uh, a problem of retention of women because of musculoskeletal uh, injuries. So spending money on integration related uh, equipment will be necessary because part of the piece of sexual misconduct in the military is that idea that women are not as valuable members of the military as other people. And it needs to be done also, we, we need to also think about how we spend money to support racialized um, service members, recognizing that misconduct is not an something that only impacts women or racialized uh, minorities within the military. But there is disproportionate issues related to that. We need to put more money also into the sexual misconduct uh, response center and, and other issues. It has been put into uh, budget 2021, but so many things has, have happened since. We've had an election since. We've had new projects moving forward. We've had a really changing uh, international security context with AUKUS. So there has been shifting uh, priorities in, in, in terms of defense. So that integration, like that equipment for personnel piece is, is very important. I think that it's gonna be 
this should be the emphasis of the minister until at least the Arbor, the Arbor review comes out in May of 2022. And then she will have to move into more of an oversight role. And that will be the difficult piece because we have seen the military really owning on culture change and really being secretive on this, but she will have to spend time monitoring it. And maybe she will need to actually establish other independent review um, committees like we have the we have the independent panel on procurement maybe we need something like that for uh for misconduct conduct and personal issues that that might remove some of the onus on her and and her office specifically to really push uh and and find more resources to to pay attention to those pieces so the problem is that with all of that money that we need to inject in a lot of procurement um procurement um processes and and gaining new capabilities for the military to gain uh, increased capabilities in uh, in a time where new technology is changing all the time we also need to just think about the most basic thing which is boots uniforms and and backpacks and it sounds simple like that but it's been stalling since at least 1994. okay well uh, charlotte jim tim uh, thanks for joining us today to, to cast your eye towards the the new minister taking on this new role at this critical point in time i uh, appreciate your thoughts all uh, one last question. Uh, I'll start with Charlotte and work my way back through you. Uh, what are you reading these days? I'm reading The Fearless Organization by Ed Amy Edmondson. It explores the, um, the concept of psychological safety. And I'm, I'm looking at this, it, it's more like for the private sector, but at the same time, I'm reading other organizational books related to the military to see how it could apply to the CAF. Jim? Uh, I've just completed reading Stalin's War, and I can't remember the author. It's a really interesting study, revisionist history, historical study, in which uh, the author argues based on a wealth of empirical evidence that uh, American Lend-Lease and the Allied contribution was critical for victory in World War II, rather than the standard argument that the Soviets won the war on the Eastern Front. And of course, it's also a damning critique of the Roosevelt administration and how they dealt with Stalin. It's a really interesting book. Okay, Tim? Uh, currently going through the Osbaldiston report. It was a report back in 1990, 1991, commissioned by the Treasury Board on um, Canada's uh, federal fleets and their different um, organizations, their different duties, and where the major mismatches and capabilities uh, and requirements were. And so it was sort of um, you know, that prelude to the eventual amalgamation of all civilian fleets under Coast Guard. So as part of that dissertation research on, you know, how do we deal with the expanded economic zone and all the you know, things that go on behind it. It took me way too long to find that thing. You think a government report would be easy to find, it'll be on the internet somewhere. No, there's like two copies in all, all Canada and I had to buy one of them. That was an excess help from hands. So that was, oh God. Anyway, yes. Okay, well, we'll end on a, a small P procurement note. Uh, thanks all for joining us today and uh, have a good afternoon. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like your stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaiica slash support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. And thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed.